Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. This is episode 175 of the show, and it's Thursday, January the 5th, 2024, as I record this. I am just back from lovely Lucca in Tuscany, where I spent two glorious weeks eating Italian food, looking at Italian art, and even brushing up on my Finnish. No, my Italian. Uh, one of the highlights of the trip was having lunch in Florence with Rodolfo Tanara and Eleonora Rebecchi, the people behind Malaeus Martialis, my current favourite sword makers, and then dashing off to the Stibbert Museum, and oh gosh, what a treat that was. I'll be writing up a blog post about it with lots of photographs of swords and armour soon, I hope. I hope you had a wonderful holiday and are looking forward to the treats in store in 2024. That even rhymes, blimey. So, let's make it a year of swords and sword friends, and yes, even sword people. So, without further ado, let's get on with the interview. Uh, I'm here today with Jonathan Bluestein, who is a martial artist and author, uh, who has some interesting questions for me about various things, and contacted me about a research project of his. So, Jonathan, why don't we start by you telling us sort of who you are, what you're interested in, and why you needed to pick my brains. Yes, thank you very much for having me today, Guy. And this conversation is certainly long overdue. Uh, we are looking to discuss certain similarities and differences between the traditional Chinese martial arts, the field of uh, practice and study from which I come from, and traditional European martial arts, both in, uh, I suppose, medieval and, and Renaissance times, as well as in our everyday lives today. Uh, my background is in traditional oriental martial arts in general. Uh, I, I did begin with Western boxing, but uh, quickly transitioned into Okinawan karate and eventually ended up practicing and teaching the traditional Chinese martial arts. Um, I've had five teachers just briefly. My main teachers are Shifun Nitsan Oren, uh, my late Shigong teacher's teacher, uh, Master Zhou Jingxuan from Tianjin, Sifu Sapir Tal. Shifu Stephen Jakovitz and Shifu Brian Hall. Uh, in our tradition, mentioning one's teachers is an important uh, cultural facet. A respect for one's teachers is um, an integral part of um, the tradition itself, is something maybe we can discuss later. And the martial arts I studied primarily, the Chinese martial arts, are Xin Yi Quan, Pi Guajang, Juklum Sofren Mantis, a little bit of Ba Guajang and uh, the Lee family system of traditional Shaolin. I've been teaching for about a decade. I've been practicing um, martial arts for about uh, 18 years. And beyond the martial arts, as Guy mentioned, I am an author. I've written a number of books on the martial arts as well as other topics. And I'm a practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine. Okay, pretty comprehensive. Now, I think maybe the first thing that will leap out at us is that in historical martial arts, as we know them, it is deplorably unlikely that any given person will actually mention their teachers. Um, hmm. and, and as a teacher, I've, I've often found that to be a little bit annoying. Like, for God's sake, tell us where you got your stuff from. But um, it basically comes down to 
the historical martial arts as we are doing them. When we use the term historical martial arts, we're basically referring to martial arts that have been recreated from textual sources from bygone periods, which means there is no living tradition at all. So, um, for example, if we're doing early 15th century knightly combat, we're doing it from books written in the early 15th century, and there is no lineage to draw on. Now, that said, um, if there is a sort of a development of, of European swordsmanship from you know, very long ago, <clears throat> um, and we can trace a development from uh, like the 16th century sword play into the use of the rapier, into the use of the small sword, and from the small sword into... Um, what became known as classical fencing and from classical fencing into modern sport fencing. So the closest thing we really have is some of the um, lineages of classical fencing that date back to the 19th century. And you could say that the inheritors of the European martial arts, certainly the sword arts, would be the sport fencers who were not doing a martial art at all. <laughs> Right? And they'll be the first to say, this is a competitive sport. This is not supposed to be how you win a sword fight in real life. Mm -hmm. So um, there is a, a fundamental difference in where we're coming from. Um, so, you know, I'm mostly known for my research into specific historical masters. And yeah, I now have some of my students have students who have students. So I guess if this was a Chinese tradition, we'd, I'd be some sort of, I don't know, Sipa or something like that. Uh, Shigong. Um, Shigong is, is the teacher of the Shufu. Okay. But there's, there's, there's another generation past that as well. Yeah, yeah. There's additional ones here. Yeah, exactly. So I'll be one of them. <laughs> right. Yes. But, because, but because there's no expectation of the student preserving the master's tradition, right? The student in our, in our activity is their job is to basically do more research, find out new things, and in many cases, prove their teacher wrong. Hmm. Right? It's much closer to, it's much closer to, for example, science hmm. than it is to, in terms, of, in terms of the way lineage works. Like, if you trained under Richard Feynman in physics, that's super cool and it kind of means something, but you're only going to get a Nobel Prize by, by doing something that Feynman couldn't. Mm-hmm. Yes, certainly. And it, it had adversarial in the transmission between generations. Um, I wouldn't call it adversarial. I would call it more developmental. I mean, okay. it's like, like having kids, right? I can hear that you have children. I have children as well. And, you know, one of these days, see, at the moment, I know more than my children on practically every topic. Not every topic, because now my eldest is now doing some chemistry and biology at school that I don't know. So she's passed me in the chemistry department already. Um, but there will be a time when, like my youngest wants to become a doctor. Fairly quickly, when she goes to med school, if she goes to med school, she's, you know, she's 14, so there's a, there's a way to go. Um, fairly quickly after she gets to med school, she's going to know a lot more about medicine than I do, mm. right? And that's good. That's what parents want, right? We want our children to surpass us in whatever areas they're interested in. And so that's closer to how I feel about my students. Like when one of my students brings out a book, which, or, or, or produces some research or, or teaches a seminar or whatever, and, and is doing their own thing using the, using the training I've given them, but building on it rather than repeating it. 
that's that's a good thing because it develops the art. It makes the art broader and deeper. Okay, so I would like to touch uh, on several differences and similarities that sure. you just mentioned, Guy. Uh, one is that we have two types of lineages in the traditional Chinese martial arts. The typical one is indeed the transmission from teacher to student, which may have been going on for uh, thousands of years, albeit the case being that this is not typically documented past a few generations. Because what had happened... Okay, so, so hang on a second. If you claim a lineage going back thousands of years, surely you have to be able to document that to claim it. And th that's exactly uh, one of the problems here, because no extant lineage of a traditional Chinese martial art can prove that it has been practiced for thousands of years. Right. The evidence is, is anecdotal, either by stories or by the fact that we, we do have paintings and technique descriptions in books, not necessarily manuals even, that indicate that very similar things were already there, say, thousand or two thousand years ago. The We know that it's been around because it's been a, a consistent transmission, but they can't prove it. The farthest that I know that the Chinese martial art can prove and trace its roots uh, would be around 400 to 500 years ago. And right. that is quite rare. The majority that's, that's, of style... That's, sorry, that's comparable to what... We, we can trace, not lineages, but exactly, but these people were trained with those people who trained with those people going back to about 1380, something like that. Mm -hmm. That's about as far back as, but the art that we're talking about has changed radically in the intervening hundreds of years, right? So it's not, it's, there's no sense of, of that. Um, the arts themselves being maintained down the generations. They've always been changed because European martial arts generally are very technologically driven. So armor changed ra radically in the late 14th century and so the martial arts changed to accommodate them. Then gunpowder became massively important from the middle of the 15th century onwards so the martial arts changed to accommodate them and so it goes. Exactly. So, so, um, so uh, yeah. I would say the majority of traditional Chinese martial arts can only say they go back around 150 to 100, 250 years. So mm -hmm. we, we would actually refer to them as rather young styles. They haven't been around right. for very long. As a matter of fact, most of the popular styles in the world today, um, the, the majority of them being, um, you know, Japanese martial arts and their derivatives have not been around for more than a century in their modern forms, right? Right. Judo, so, uh, Aikido, etc. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the majority of um, Chinese styles have uh, documented lineages. They go back a few generations, typically anywhere between three and ten generations, and then prior to that, it's mostly myth and storytelling and, and anecdotal. But there are also a, a handful of styles nowadays which have been recreated from manuals, and that is okay. a very new thing. It's been going on for the past twenty years. So the Chinese, in parallel with the Europeans, have been doing something very similar. And the, the reason for this is attempting to bring, bring about extinct traditions that were once uh, quite noteworthy right. and historically yeah. important. So, so, That's so, what we're doing. Exactly. So, so military uh, spear traditions and sword traditions. Uh, for example, there is a very uh, famous Chinese general by the name of Qi Jiguang. 
who fought both uh, in Korea, what is now the, the area of Korea, as well as on the coastal plains of China against the Japanese pirates. So there actually there was actually a period with um, massive Japanese pirate excursions against the the coastal settlements of China, and that was a big thing. The Chinese Japanese feud is is much older than the Second World War, and during that time, uh, Xi Jinping is the general who is said to have fended off the, the the pirates, and that is documented in you know official imperial uh, history books. And one of the weapons utilized by the troops of Qi Jiguang is the Miao Dao. Miao Dao is a longsword comparable with what is today the Japanese Nodachi or Odachi. So it is a katana-like weapon, somewhat different in the construction of the handle, because the, Jap the Chinese did not have uh, the same type of wrap around the handles as the Japanese do. They preferred using um, plain wooden handles. Mm -hmm. So the grain of the wood would be um, what your palm would rub against and, and then keep the sword in hand rather than uh, this very uh, rough grip that the Japanese are using. And the sword uh, was around the length of 135 centimeters, depending okay. on, which, which is quite long. Yeah, it's about the same as a European longsword, mm -hmm. generally. I mean, they vary yes. hugely in length, but yeah. Exactly. I mean, so there's that, variation. My favorite, my favorite longsword is about 140. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, of course, that, that will depend on, depend on one's height. For my height, I'm um, 168 centimeters. I'm mm -hmm. five foot six. So for me, uh, an optimal Miao Dao is around 135 centimeters. Right. But if I was a tad taller than 140 is better. And they were up to two meters long, but these wow. were great. Yeah, they, <laughs> That's they a beast. were. Yes, yes, there, there are historical examples, both in uh, written documentation as well as in paintings. And yeah. paintings we, of, um, of the we have, we have swords like that called Montante and Spadone, or mm. Spyhanders, so like really big, sort of five foot long sort of thing. So um, the, the, the difference being, I think, the, the Montante and the, the long swords were around for a very long time, while the Miao Dao actually was um, primarily utilized for a very brief period in Chinese history and then sort of disappeared. Mm -hmm. It was kept in very um, small, scarce traditions within the Chinese martial arts. But because those lineages were so, were so few and, uh, and in between, very few people in China preserved the type of practice. A lot of people who were not privy to learn from these particular lineages, recreated a lot of um, Miao Dao practice and content mm. from the traditional manuals, which were uh, actually quite detailed. They were at least as detailed as the good manuals you have from medieval period. See, that's, that's something I'm, I'm curious about. Like these historical sources, um, it is quite difficult to find historical sources that have sufficient information in one source that you can actually recreate the system mm -hmm. from that. Because usually they're not written to enable that. They're, they're written as a record for someone who already knows it or as a, exactly, a yeah. way of, of a fencing master getting more business rather than um, sort of for posterity to preserve the entirety of the art in a way that, such that it can be recreated. Um, so tell us a bit about your research project. Like what, 
you initially contacted me through a friend, a mutual friend. Um, what, you, what is your actual research project? Well, currently, I'm in the midst of working on a book called Martial Arts Politics Explained. <laughs> that is a bold title. Oh, it is. Martial Arts Politics Explained. I think the subtitle is um, Culture, History, and Comedy. Okay. Cultural history. Because where, where we have martial arts politics, there's going to be a lot of drama and there's going to be a lot of comedy as well. That is true in every area of martial arts I've ever encountered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when one seeks to explain how politics work in the martial arts, uh, where I started the book is with exploring the different types of martial arts schools. So all over the world, we have uh, certain modalities which are quite common. We have the um, the sports club, yep. which can be, uh, I um, subdivided it into two categories. Generally speaking, you have the stable and you have the gym. A stable is simply a martial arts sports club that's more geared towards competition. So competitors mm -hmm. make the majority of people there. And the gym is a lay people sports club. There might be a few competitors, but most people are not professional athletes. That's a really useful distinction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we see that in historical martial arts or yeah, historical martial arts clubs. Those that are basically sports clubs are either stables or gyms. You're right. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I've not word, thought of it that way. Yeah. It, it took me a while to, to get to it. You know, for, I, I began writing the book and then it came, dawned on me. And the word stable, I actually borrowed from the sumo stables of Japan. Uh, right, okay. Yeah, so this is the, a, a Japanese term because they, they figured, you know, those uh, sumo warriors were essentially groomed similar to how they would groom professional horses, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and modern F1, um, Formula One clubs or uh, companies are often referred to as stables. Oh, that's very interesting. Yes, and the Formula One uh, drivers, people who, who are not in the know, are actually top athletes and they right. do a, a whole lot more than simply drive those cars. Um, one of the things I know they do, they, uh, they do mid-range competitive running. They don't actually compete, but they, they run at a competitive level in order to build the stamina and the body yeah. like strength required for the races. Yep. Um, okay, so you've got the sports clubs, which are stables, mm -hmm. gyms. What's the exactly. other? What? Yeah. So the other ones would be the the traditional dojo or dojang. Dojo mm -hmm. is the Japanese tradition. The the dojang is a, an equivalent Korean tradition, which is quite close to it. You got the wuguan. Wuguan is the uh, Mandarin term for the um, the martial hall, literally okay. martial hall. In the West, there are a lot of uh, Cantonese-speaking Chinese. So a lot of people in the United Kingdom, for example, as well as in the United States, know the Wuguan as the Quan. Quan is the... Ah, um, uh, okay. So the Quan, Quan literally, uh, Guan is a hall. It's short for uh, the Wuguan, which is the martial hall. That's the... So when, when they say the word hall, one has to, to think, oh, they're actually referring to something that's kind of like a YMCA. It's a community center. So historically, unlike the uh, dojo yeah. in Japan, the dojo is, is built uh, sort of like a, um, a temple. So it's, it's yeah. I, I, culturally isolated sort of unit where people go to do this sacred thing. The Wuguan, in terms of how things are handled within it, can be a tad less formal 
because mm-hmm. it can be a community center where people don't just practice martial arts. They also have social gatherings. They also have something for the kids. It's not a YMCA in the commercial sense, but it's a YMCA in the communal sense. Right. Originally, okay. traditionally. Yeah. Um, then you have, of course, the cult. <laughs> yeah. Right. We have some of those in historical mm-hmm. martial arts too. And, and honestly, one of the things I had to work pretty hard at in the beginning was not allowing my new young school to develop into a cult. There mm. were definite, there were definitely people who came in the early days who wanted it to become a cult. Other people seeking for uh, spiritual meaning, right? We have a lack of spiritual meaning in our time. But also, but also looking for a somebody to tell them what to do, hmm. right? A spiritual leader who would who would basically make all their decisions for them, and and they wouldn't have to like think about the big scary stuff outside the training hall ever again. Yeah, like, so, it's, yeah. it's it's and and you know the it's a difficult thing because on the one hand you have students who want you to provide a service for them that on the face of it is kind of fine um but it it leads in a direction that where you end up becoming the unquestionable authority and that is death to academic research Hmm. right like the worst thing that can happen to a scientist is when people just take his word for stuff and don't actually read their papers and you know figure out whether they're actually right or not. Oh, that's right. a problem we have in all of martial arts. There, yeah, there absolutely. are certain people who are into actually understanding, building a comprehensive understanding of the tradition and other ones that join along for other reasons. Yeah. So, um, uh, so we have the, um, the sports club, which can be a gym or a stable. We have the dojo or dojang. We have the wuguan. We have the cult. That I mean, everybody knows what how cults are, but they're very yeah. they're specific to martial arts cults. We can discuss later. We have the temple, and the temple is um, it's its own type, but it's almost a subtype. Can be a subtype of any of the other ones. It's a school that handles itself as a, an isolated cultural sphere from the rest of society. So it can be an actual physical temple. Or at times, it's um, in Japanese martial arts, for example, that would be a honbo dojo, where it's the headquarters of the organization. But people ascend to the headquarters. They also almost uh, one, one could say immigrate there for a period of a few weeks, a few months, a few years, in order to practice in isolation. And temple has its own dynamics because then you have a temple bureaucracy. Um, mm. In temples, there is, uh, generally speaking, almost always a, a guiding ideology, if not a religion. And you you have to either have faith in that religion or at least pay lip service to it. Uh, it's not always called uh, a religion. Sometimes it is. Um, for example, uh, you might be familiar with the uh, one of the newer Japanese styles that was founded a few decades ago called uh, Shirinji Kenpo. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, so Shirinji Kenpo... Uh, literally, by the way, um, in Chinese, that would be Shaolin Chuenfa. Shorinji is Shaolin, and mm-hmm. Kenpo is fist method in Chinese Chuenfa. So they, they literally call the style Shaolin fist method, although it is, quite curiously, partly a recreated style. Okay. Or, or it's a manual inspired. It's part from 
manuals and in paintings part the the um the founder's own ideas the founder was i think doshin so uh, in any case this is a religious organization okay so go, going to practice at their home bodojo is in a way you join in the religion but it's not exactly like uh, in western religions because the uh, east asian peoples have a different conception of what a religion is uh, for most East Asian people, unless they're either, you know, Christians or, or Muslims, even some of the Muslims, I suppose, a religion is um, something you add on. It's like, uh, a, I wouldn't want to uh, put down a religion, but it's, it's almost like a clothing item, it's something you choose to wear. It's what you show, it's what you express. So you can wear several clothing items on top of each other. Which one did you wear first and which one was on top of it? You can change that. And religions have different functions, much like uh, with attire. Some are for summer, some are for winter. So some religions they use for their weddings, others for their funerals, others yet for their everyday lives. So they're more flexible in their conception of, you know, what it means to be religious and what a religion can be used for. It's not a monotheistic commitment. Even a lot of them who believe in a monotheistic religion would take on another religion or maybe two of them to be practiced or believed in, in a different area of their lives. And it's considered perfectly legitimate uh, in Japan, in China, and in, in Korea. And, th and therefore, people so, go... So hang on. So, so we're talking about a religion which is not a, a requirement to believe a specific theology. It, it could be. It could be. Um, and, and it's very popular in certain um, areas of East Asia that... For example, you you would just have to say, yes, I do believe that the uh, founder was divinely inspired. Ah, okay. 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 Classic. Be, yes, but <laughs> but not in the sense, but there is no agenda like, uh, oh, he was divinely inspired. Now we have to conquer this or that country. Or oh, oh, he was divinely inspired. Now we have to do everything he says forever. Well, he's dead. So you, right, you don't helps. give him money. You give money to to his <laughs> organization. <laughs> his organization, yeah. Um, but this was all just to say that people go and they might. For, for a much simpler example, people go to the Shaolin Temple. Right. The Shaolin Temple on Song Mountain. By the way, the Shaolin was um, was a franchise of temples, yeah, both northern and and southern China. So there, uh, at, at one point in time, there are dozens of them. Uh, and they all belong in the Shaolin sect. Shaolin is the name of a Buddhist sect. That's the the name itself means um, the young forest or the lesser forest or grove. But it sim simply refers to you know most of these temples were in the areas of forests and groves. But the idea is you go to a Shaolin temple today, and there's certain Buddhist rituals. And you might bow to uh, to the statue of the Buddha, or you might say a Buddhist prayer in the morning. But do they care whether you might be uh, a Jew or a Muslim or a Christian? They don't really mind as long as you do whatever they do at the temple. So there, yeah. in their view, there's no contradiction. And a lot of people go there and and they feel like, okay, so whilst I'm in the temple, I behave like a Buddhist, and then at home, I'm a Confucian. Right. For, the, for them, that's legitimate. It's a different conception of religion in the East. So, in any case, so we, we, we mentioned there is the sports club, there is the uh, Dojo or Dojang, there's the Wu Guan, known as Quan in Cantonese, there is the cult, there is the temple, and then the final one, the sixth one, 
is the recreational, which is mm-hmm. likely the, the most common type of martial arts school. In the recreational, there is an instructor and there are trainees. Now, I know that in the martial arts, people, um, some people call themselves a sifu, shifu, some people call themselves a coach, some people call themselves an instructor. But I, I would say in, in, case, in the case of, of the recreational, it really is an instructor. They, that, the, the sole purpose of that person being there is to instruct, to just technically show how things work. They're not a teacher per se, most of them. They're not a father figure. They're not a leader. They're just there to instruct people on how to benefit themselves in some way, to have fun. And there's no deeper purpose to it. There's, of course, also famously, the subtype of the recreational we all know as the McDojo. Yeah. Yes. And the McDojo Although is... The McDojo is very often um, presents itself as a, as a cult or a gym or even a stable yes exactly so so the, the mcdojo in in a sense if we, we were to be honest about it is usually a recreational because it only rises up to the level of you know being a recreational school but th- there are certainly um different types of mcdojos that can in a way have a legit aspects of their curriculum and then the McDojo-ish type of attitude with, with other aspects. Hmm. Um, I can provide an example. I, I knew, no, that's, that's actually, no, that's a different combination. So of all of these six I mentioned, there could be um, uh, combinations thereof. So one the example I want to give now was of uh, a dojo cult. The dojo cult is a very common one. Very common. Yes. So uh, th- there was a certain school I knew, which was actually a fine school with uh, an excellent curriculum. But then there are a lot of cultish elements in terms of, you know, people would tell stories. Oh, yeah, the, the teacher uh, killed a cow with a punch. And then, they, right. they, yeah, there would be a lot of stories like that. This is silly things that people would make up in, tor- in order to glorify the teacher. Who, by the way, mostly did not encourage this, but it was he also did not go against it. And there ah, okay. was one one point in time when suddenly all the male students at the school went and did a mohawk. So that, right. that's always um, you know a suspicious sign. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that that is that is straight out of uh, Cobra Kai. Exactly. This was a, the, I, I don't want to tarnish those good people's name and names and reputations. Some of them are really good people, but certainly there are a lot of uh, Cobra Kai-esque elements to that um, chain of dojos, actually, for a certain period of time. But then again, then again, the, the contents, the curriculum was, was actually quite good. So there could be a balance between... And it was a very traditional dojo, also affiliated with a very respectable organization in Okinawa. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things are not black and white. There are many, many shades of gray in the martial arts. And like, likewise with the, the McDojo, you can have a McDojo, McDojo that's quite malevolent, where the teacher is all about money and the whole purpose of the McDojo is to enrich the owners. Yeah. And there could be almost a naive McDojo where it's very low level, but the, the teacher is, is just this petty person who doesn't know better 
Okay, so how does all this relate to... So you've got this classification of different mm. kinds of martial arts schools. How does this relate to the politics? Okay, so that's a very interesting question. Every type of school structure creates a different uh, political dynamics. Let's take the example of the dojo. Uh, dojo is built in a very bureaucratic, hierarchical fashion. The whole model of how dojos are operated today arose during the, uh, the Meiji Restoration period in Japan, when the, the, the Japanese were basically saying, we lost a cultural war with the West, we were backwards with our social structure, backwards with our technology. We have to somehow create a new nation, which is Japanese in essence, at its core, but also abandons a lot of our traditions in favor of Western ideas, which have proven themselves to be more efficient. And we know them to be more efficient because they're supposedly one over us. They didn't, the West yeah. did not conquer Japan during the 19th century, but the Japanese knew that had the West wanted to, with their ships and with their armies, they could. Right. And, and, and the Japanese were very deliberate about what they incorporated into their culture and what they left out. There, exactly. There's, there's a whole bunch of really interesting books on that exact topic. It's, it's, it, it wasn't, they just, the stuff, sort of filtered in it was like no we will take this we will not take that mm. yeah yes yes and one of the things they took wholeheartedly was fascism which for them <laughs> yeah unfortunately <laughs> yes for, for them it, it was just um an almost a direct continuation of their older feudal system it was right. just um a more efficient way to do their traditional feudalism right and in in fascism, you need hierarchy, and you yeah. need commitment to cause, and you need structure. And if you go into a traditional Japanese dojo, and that is not meant, this is just descriptive, I don't mean to put them down, because there are also many advantages to the things I would be describing now. Social mm -hmm. advantages, practical advantages, you see how things are very orderly. Even before you step in the place, you bow to the dojo itself, because the place has cultural significance. It has spiritual meaning. Now that in particular comes from Shinto, from the uh, Japanese folk religion, which has it that every object, everything, certainly living things in the universe, has a soul, has a spiritual dimension to it. So I can bow to an object like the building that is the dojo because I respect it. So you show respect even before you step in. Then you step in, and you bow to one another, you bow to the teacher, you bow to your friends, um, then the, the class is due to begin its on time, always has to be exactly on time, which is a very Japanese and a very non-Chinese thing, by the way. But it's also it's a very me thing. Like All my classes, they start on time. Once mm -hmm. in 22 and a half years of doing this full-time for a living, one seminar of mine started three minutes late because I got stuck behind a series of tractors and a two-hour drive took me three hours, right? And my class started three minutes late. And to this day, it haunts me. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I, I, I would just um, diverge here for, for one second just to say I used to be like that. And then I, I, I had this whole 
problem with, you know, how do you deal with adults who are late? You know, you, I'm an adult, you're an adult. Push-ups. Uh, but yes, but, but then there's, uh, I, I agree, I would put them in a horse stance, you know, and say, oh, that's good training, you know. So the, what, what we would do in the years prior is you're five minutes late, that's, that's five minutes in horse step. Okay. We, by the way, in Chinese, horse step and horse stance because the steps are supposed to be dynamic. Well, that's another thing. So you ten minutes late, you get to stand for ten minutes, which is really, really difficult. That's really so hard. was so. By the time they were supposed to be fifteen <clears> minutes late, they'd rather just not come rather than well, you just stand yeah, for my, fifteen minutes. My solution was it is the class starts on time. If the warm up is still going on, you can just do ten push ups and join the warm up. Right. If the warm up is over, you've missed the class you're welcome to stay and watch for as long as you want. And there was, it was never any kind of, you've been naughty. It was just, we want everyone to go th through the warm-up so that they are safe to do the joint locks and things we're going to be doing, right? So to my mind, it was more of a, it's better for the teacher that they know who's going to be in their class so they don't have to deal with late entries. And it's better for the students present if everyone has warmed up and gotten to know each other and done the whole kind of easing into the whole class mentality thing. So I mean, it, it works. works. Yeah, yeah. yeah. These, are, these are good solutions. They work. But what happened was over time, I just shifted and I began to do things the Chinese way. That's how Chinese teachers do is simply the, the, the teacher declares he's at this and that hour at the park and people just come. But the way it works, it, it only works because the way I teach a class is at times they all practice together and much of the time they practice by themselves or with me. I go between people. I constantly mm -hmm. shift. So I'll spend half a minute, a minute with this person. Then I go to the next person, next person. Then someone might ask a good question. Then I bring them all together to work on that thing I wanted to explain to them. Um, so it's a little more laid back to begin with. And therefore, what, what I do nowadays, I, they know that I'll be at the park for two to two and a half hours on a given day. And they can come whenever they like and they can leave whenever they like. But it's recommended they come for at least an hour and a half. Uh, many come for two hours. And the first person that comes, we do um, several people to come together. We uh, do bowing, uh, seated bowing like they do in traditional Japanese martial arts. Mm -hmm. And the, the last people that remain, we also do bowing. But um, for people who come in the middle of it, we do standing salutations, which is the Chinese way to um, start and close a class. So I right. combine both. By the way, the, the reason that I started um, the bowing thing, which is, it used to be Chinese. The tradition came from China. Chinese just let it go over the years. Is that Israelis are very unruly. And I felt that I needed to literally bow them down. And <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, and have them wear traditional attire and shows a little bit more respect Otherwise, the, the classes were chaotic. I started right. very casual when they started teaching. There were no uniforms. There's no bowing. There's no uh, calling me shifu. Uh, within a few months, I saw that if I was not going to introduce those concepts, things are going to remain chaotic and this is going to go nowhere. Right. And this and is an interesting point, right? Every culture, every like I have groups that I train with all over the world, right? And every single one of them has a different culture and it reflects the needs of the local situation. And in some areas, what they need is a clear hierarchy and a clear rank structure so that students can progress through the equivalent of like belt ranks. We don't use belts, but you get the idea. Mm -hmm. um, other places, 
I just sort of turn up and there's a bunch of people there and we just decide what we're going to do and then we just sort of do it and they all have a nice time and it's it's just it's it's basically a totally flat hierarchy and there's no kind of rank development of any kind right mm. I don't I don't actually care right what I care is is that the students who come get what they came for and leave healthier and better martial artists than they were when they arrived right that's it and whatever local structure is necessary to help that to happen, that's what we use. So again, some places use uniforms, some places don't. And it is very much kind of culturally dependent. And it's interesting to hear that, you know, if I go and teach in Israel, I need to make sure that they are wearing <laughs> wearing uniforms and they call me Dr. Windsor or Sir or something. And, you know, you know just, just give them a bit of external structure because otherwise it will be chaos. That's a useful tip. Yeah, I, just uh, following with with what you're just saying, I was told that in Germany um, they expect a, a strong leader. We also see it historically, and they they desire that the person who's going to teach them has to have the right qualifications and also the right attitude to to be able. He doesn't have to be cocky, but he has to be able to prove to them that he does know better. And this is a, a mm. German cultural expectation because they, in their minds, it's uh, it goes like you know if he, he if he's not better than I then why am I even here? He has to be an expert, right? Yeah, and you say that, and and you know I teach quite often in Germany, and although depending on where I am, the whole hierarchy thing doesn't necessarily even apply. Um, mm. They do they do like. They do like the fact that I've got a PhD. That that that's that's like yes, it's Doctor Windsor. That's good. And you know, Lufthansa is one of the very few airlines in the world where when you book your ticket, right, you have a whole load of different potential titles. Like Ryanair, you're Mister, Mrs. Ms. or Miss. That's it. But on on Lufthansa, it's are you Doctor? Are you Professor Doctor? Are you if you've got two doctorates, you could be Professor Doctor Doctor. It's like they've got you covered. <laughs> But again, that's just a cultural thing. And, you know, mm -hmm. I don't care either way. My students all call me guy these days. And it's just, you know. But going to a new area, it's helpful to know what what those students need, culturally speaking, to get them into the mindset where they will get the best out of the seminar. Yeah, Israelis typically believe that they know better than okay. everybody. And okay. they, they don't expect the hierarchy, but they respect the hierarchy. Okay. It's imposed upon them. So it's unlike right. the Japanese des desire the hierarchy. In Japanese culture, there needs to be a certain measure of hierarchy for them to feel comfortable with the organization to begin with. Right. Israelis are not in, in actual psychological need of hierarchy, but without hierarchy, they quickly begin to think that they, oh, why couldn't I just do this technique that way? I'll just try it. Yeah. I just right, yeah, yeah. and as funny said, it's it's one of the few modern nations that still has conscription. Now, for good kind of historical reasons, but mm -hmm. it's it's that sort of that imposition of society is is in a position to literally require a year or whatever it is of your life. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's actually <clears throat> three years for men. Three years, two year, yeah, three years for men and two years ah, for women. I served a, for three years. A, really, what what service did you do? So I began as an infantryman. Uh, with mm -hmm. the uh, Golani Brigade 13th Battalion and following my infantry boot camp I was injured so my medical profile was lowered you get a, a medical score 
Mm-hmm. And if the score is too low due to an injury or an illness or whatnot, then you, you cannot be in infantry. So they transferred me to the Israeli police force, okay. which is unusual. There, are, there aren't a lot of um, people who, do, who go for their mandatory service with the Israeli police force. The majority of them just work for, <clears throat> for 911. And, but right. I was, uh, through, through some, um, let's just say, uh, internal politicking, you know, talking to, talking to the right way to the right people, I got myself into uh, investigations. So okay. I was uh, with a major crimes unit, uh, Tel Aviv Central Unit in, uh, in Jaffa. Uh, rapists, arsonists, murderers, crime families, stuff like wow. that. Yeah, so that, that was, that's uh, that's a fascinating way to do some national service. Oh, certainly, certainly it was. So that was for over two and a half years of my life. I spent there. It's a it's a twenty four hour job. You're supposed to on paper it's um, it's a nine hour workday. Mm-hmm. Uh, on average, <coughs> it's a twelve hour workday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you happen to arrest a whole crime family, that's a four day without. Any sleep work day. <laughs> wow, yeah. It's like, it's like um, a, a friend of mine got got a job when he, he said, well, this, this, is a, this is a half-time job, right? And they said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's 12 hours per day, but I get to choose which 12. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, okay, you get it. In you go. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, exactly. Yeah, police everywhere are understaffed. There's no, I don't mm-hmm. think there's a country where there, there are too many policemen. It doesn't tend to happen. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. There are certainly areas where the police are given too much money to buy tanks. Oh, yeah. So that, 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 that certainly happens. There could be, there's <clears throat> the, there are always certain departments within a police force in every nation that get too much money and get too, too many men. But for the most part, most police yeah. units are understaffed. Well, that's true. Anyway, um, we have to go back to the, we're just talking about hierarchy at the dojo, right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yes. So, so people, the class begins and they all uh, sit in a row. And traditionally, uh, the lower ranking belts are on one side and the higher ranking belts are on the other yeah. side. You're, you're positioned, you know, based on your belt rank. And then the uh, most senior black belt or two of them or the uh, sensei's assistant are sitting uh, next to them. And the assistant might sit diagonally while the, the sensei sits right in front of the others. And then the, they all bow to the sensei and then they all bow to the assistant. And then uh, they bow back to them and then they, they turn sideways and bow to each other. On first, before all of that, they bow to the shaman, which is the, the main wall where they have a little temple. Which yeah, it's like way, an icon or a it's, little altar. Originally, it's a... The idea is it's a Shinto religious icon. Now, the intention is not religious in most Western dojos, but it's, it stands to rep- the little temple um, on the k- Kamidana. Kamidana is uh, literally in, in Japanese the spirit shelf. It's the right. little shelf that they put the little wooden temple on top of. And the, the wooden temple represents this, the physic, it's the physical manifestation of the spirit of the place. Because like I said, in Shinto, everything and every place has its spirit. So you bow to the spirit of the place. And then if there are, there are often um, pictures of founders or previous teachers on the wall, so you bow to them and then the sensei, the assistant, then the students to, to one another, and then you can begin a class. And then during the class before 
each partner practice, you bow to one another, etc. Um, if the if the teacher says yummy, yummy, stop. Everybody stops like they're robots, right? It's, it's immediately it's it's of course it's very important in all of martial arts that you know yeah. instructor I mean, teacher says stop. We have, you. we have the same thing in all of my classes because. It could be everyone needs to stop because we're about to do something else, but it could also be everyone needs to stop because the practice is getting dangerous and someone's about to have an accident, and so mm -hmm. we have to stop right now. Exactly, so. yeah. But, but the, you, you can see, you know, when you experience this as a Japanese dojo, you see the level of obedience and the seriousness of how people perceive it to be. It's different. Yeah. And they're all, of course, dressed in, in pure white, and, and white is the is pure color. Um but only and there's the black belt hierarchy, right? And they, I, sure. I know dojos that they have um, restrooms and toilets which are black belts only. Oh Jesus! Yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's I bet, a thing. I bet. Okay, all right. So, so we, we, you're getting into lots of detail about how some Japanese dojos are run, but we sort of skipped over the whole politics thing. Oh, so it leads to it. So, so what happens is okay. If I have my own uh, showers and toilets that are different to yours, then am I am I better than you? If I'm a black belt and all the senior black belts have their pictures on the wall and your picture is not on the wall. So, of course, first of all, you, you can look at it in two different ways or, or both together. You can be jealous or you can say, oh, I aspire to that. I also want my picture on the wall or I can be jealous and want my picture on the wall. And maybe he got the better position for his picture. Why shouldn't my picture, you know, be higher than his picture? I feel I, ju I just landed a kick on this guy. He's been training for 10 years. I've only been training for a year. I think I bettered him in sparring yesterday. So shouldn't my picture be on the wall? Hmm. Dynamics. And then I go, I go and I tell my, my friend, you know, I should be promoted already. Why? And the friend says, why haven't you been promoted? He says, why, why, you go, why won't you go to the sensei? And you go to Sensei and, and you say, Sensei, I'm very serious. I want to teach this martial art in the future. And say you've been around longer for you. You've been around, say you're a brown belt. You've been around for, I don't know, four, five, six, seven years. And the Sensei has to, you know, he has his gears turning in his head. He thinks, yeah, you know, those other three black belts I have actually suck. I don't like them that much. But this guy's a brown belt. And okay, and that Sensei's a dick. Of course, I'm just giving you, you know, actual examples of how things, how the politics yeah. transpire, right? And since he thinks, but this guy, this guy actually wants to train. This guy is a better fighter than them. Maybe, maybe I should promote him. And then in six months, I should get him like the, uh, the next black belt. And I should sort of accelerate his progress because there is an interest here. Maybe the sensei likes him better as a person. Maybe he's a better martial artist and then the sensei wants to promote him quicker so he can open another dojo for him, which could be, mean more respect or more money or both. Maybe, just maybe, that also happens. The student happens to be female and something's going on between her and the sensei. So these are just random examples of things that actually do on occasion sure. happen in, in traditional martial arts. And that's how people think, you know, and then... There, there could be a bunch of, another example, could be a bunch of teachers, not just uh, senseis. It doesn't have to be from Japanese martial arts. And the, the buddies, you know, they meet every Friday and they sit, they have a sit down and talk martial arts and life. And one guy says, you know, your dojo looks kind of empty. Why won't I, 
you know, you've been a, you, you've been teaching 30 years. I want I really want to give you something. You're my friend. I'll give you an, uh, an award. So he awards him for, I don't know, uh, this and this teacher of the year or a uh, lifetime achievement award, blah, blah, blah. And then the guy hangs it on the wall of his school. Then um, the the fellow who got the, the lifetime honorary, blah, 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 goes uh, a few months later and he does a special ceremony in his school and he gives the, this other friend an honorary black belt, which, yes, mm-hmm. there is such a thing, like an or- sure. honorary uh, academic degree, honorary sure. black belt in his style that the other guy never actually trained in. And then the, the, the guy who got the honorary black belt can say, you know, I'm also a black belt in that style. Like people say, I'm a doctor and it's an honorary doctor, uh, right? Yeah. I'm, again, only a dick. Well, you say that, but it's quite common. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, okay, but maybe only a dick. Like, like, if you have a an honorary doctorate, I know people who have honorary doctorates and they don't call themselves Dr. So-and-so. And, and you know, they maybe have an honorary doctorate in, I don't know, in law, for example. And they don't claim to be a lawyer based on an honorary doctorate in law. Oh, well, they, you, you wouldn't want to do that here in Israel. That, that would <laughs> no. <not> turn out well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so... Um, what you're describing at the moment is basically people who are assholes behaving badly. But I'm more interested in the politics that comes about when people who are acting in good faith nonetheless end up creating schisms and camps and end up at loggerheads with each other um, without this sort of, um, what's the word? Uh, scheming scheming or conniving or yeah, underhand stuff it's like like I mean you see in historical martial arts world all the time right there's there are people who are for example studying the works of Fiori de Libre as I do right and they are divided into camps based on like how they interpret a specific bit of the book or how they you know h- how well they adapt Fiori's art to the modern tournament scene or whatever. And you, and you end up with people who are, who on the face of it, they should be all getting along because they all love the same sources and they all train and they're all serious about it and they're all nice to their students. And we're not talking about, we're not talking about dicks here. Um, but still, nonetheless, because of the natural human tendency for people to identify with a tribe and what is outside my tribe is therefore by definition other, and therefore shouldn't be trusted, you get this sort of separation into specific camps. So like 20 years ago, if you showed up to a historical fencing event, it didn't really matter what you studied. It didn't really matter what level you were at because there were so few of us that the notion of, oh my God, you're mad about swords and think the historical sources are cool. Brilliant, you're definitely one of us. Welcome to the tribe. But as the tribe grew bigger and bigger and bigger, and yes, there were some bad actors, but leaving those aside, even the good actors naturally sort of separated themselves out into camps. And sometimes in those camps, a a myth of superiority over other camps develops because not because of any one person saying bad things about other people, but it's just, if you have that kind of looking inwards towards your tribe viewpoint, you will Mm. tend to see it through a, through rose-tinted spectacles, and when you look outside, you're looking perhaps more rationally. And so you get this sort of, this siloing of what was a, what was a small, relatively harmonious community 
that's debatable. Um, but it, it silos and it, it becomes unnecessarily fragmented simply because people identify with tribes. Yes, I, I think that a tradition naturally gives rise to politics because once you have to define what the thing is, then you have to define the borders and right. anybody who then steps outside of those borders is, is what? Is a traitor? Is an outsider? He's a bad person? You know. But I have a very good example to, to provide for you in, in that regard. So what often happens, especially in the Chinese martial arts, um, in the Japanese martial arts, they, they tend to write down much, if not all, of their curriculum. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a brown belt and this is the amount, this, this is the list of things that I'm going to be studying as a brown belt, give or take. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a third degree black belt, this is what is expected of me. In the Chinese martial arts, not so. Uh, I do make yep. an effort to write much of my curriculum down, but there's so much wisdom which is contained between the lines in, in the heart-to-heart transmission between a teacher and a student. And what the Chinese teachers have done all throughout history is that they don't give an equal measure of knowledge to all of their students. Now, this has to do with Confucian culture. So uh, Confucius taught, we know this from the Confucian Analects, which is a book written by his students because he did not write anything. In the Analects, there, there is one verse that says um, something along the lines of, and, and I hope I'm quoting uh, very accurately here, if, a, if I give the student one quarter and the student cannot inquire and come back to me with the other three quarters, then I would not bother teach that student again. So there okay. is a cultural expectation uh, by teachers in China, not just martial arts teachers, but all, all traditionally minded teachers in China for thousands of years now that, you know, it doesn't have to be only I give him one quarter. It has to, to come back with the, the other three quarters. But I need to be able to give to provide a foundation and then uh, give out hints. And the student needs to work hard to, to comprehend the greater bulk of it on their own. Otherwise, they're not learning. I'm, otherwise, I'm spoon feeding them. So right. Chinese teachers, traditionally what they would do, if the student is lazy or is not scholarly gifted, at least in terms of studying the, the martial arts, not, not necessarily in terms of reading and such, because um, most of Chinese martial arts teachers throughout history have been illiterate. Um, if this, or if they just don't like that student, or maybe they don't, they have good reasons to not trust that student. Maybe that student killed somebody in a brawl. And maybe he killed somebody in a brawl before they were their student, but since they killed a person, maybe they cannot be trusted. Maybe that student uh, is involved in some shady business. Maybe that student belongs with a gang, etc. So often in a, in a traditional Japanese dojo, and there would be exceptions, um, if a student belongs in a gang, they would tell him, quit the gang or you're out. Or they wouldn't even have him as a student at a dojo. Again, there are exceptions, but generally speaking. Hmm. A Chinese teacher would say, yeah, so what? So he's in a gang. That's his own life. Yeah, he said, he can be in a gang. None, none of my business. I'll teach him to the extent that they feel comfortable with, with, given I know he is a gang member, which might be a lot or might not be much, but he's a paying student, isn't he? What, what's wrong here? If he does something bad, that's on him. That's not on me. That's a very um, 
Chinese way to think about uh, relationships in general. They don't assume personal responsibility much for the actions of another person. In, in the West, we have this uh, Judeo-Christian conception of, you know, if my son went and he killed somebody, then I am I'm guilty, I'm a bad father. Now, what kind of education do they give that person? He's my own son. In Chinese culture, yeah, they might feel bad, but there, there's no... It's not that they're not moral. They're, on average, just as moral as any other human on the planet. It's just that culturally, they say, you know, everybody has their own karma. Everybody has their own life. Maybe I did my best. He's a problem person. All right. It's just a part of life. So how does that lead to politics? So what happens is this. With a Chinese teacher, let's say the Chinese teacher had 10 students. And those 10 students each spent 20, 20 years, no less, with that teacher. So 10 students each for 20 years. By the end of those 20 years, with a traditionally minded Chinese martial arts teacher, each of them is gonna, going to come out with a very different take, a very different take on the exact same system. Sure. To the degree. Now, and of course, that happens in all of martial arts, but in Chinese martial arts, that can be to the degree that some of them are really high-level practitioners who know the whole system. And some of them are still around the same level they were at after a year or two of training. Yeah, they so they didn't have doing... 20 years of training. They have one year of training 20 times. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, we but see that was... a lot. <laughs> now, the interesting thing is that can happen organically as a result of bad practice. But in Chinese martial arts, that often happens with the teacher intending this to happen. He, the teachers intend to keep some people at the level of one or two years and keep them there because they didn't like the person or the person couldn't be trusted or whatever. Uh, that's outrageous. Like, yes. What the hell? Like, if, 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 if I had a student like that, I was like, okay, I'm happy to give you your first year of training, but I think you're a dick, so I do not want to hmm. give you any more than that. I would have to say, look, I just don't want to teach you anymore. Oh, so you see, this has to do with your background in jurisprudence. This I don't have a background in jurisprudence. Oh, you you have a cultural background in jurisprudence. Okay. What you're to just so I have a legal education. I have a law degree and I have a, a government studies degree. Okay, and I don't have either of those things. Yeah, what what, what uh, you're just talking about is actually a cultural perception of contractual law. So if you think about it, hmm. you're just talking about the type of contract that is between a teacher and a student. What kind right. of unwritten contract do we have? Yeah. It, can, can we say that within that contract, as a teacher, you are obligated to ensure to the best of your ability that the student keeps progressing as the years go by? And, the, and you say, you, guy, you, you believe wholeheartedly, as most people would believe, by the way, in the West, that... It is most certainly your responsibility to push that student forward as much as possible under the circumstances. I, I wouldn't phrase it, hang on, no. I would say I have to give them my best efforts and an environment in which if they choose to take the opportunities in front of them, they will progress as well as they reasonably could. Yes. Right? Which, yes. which in, in um, the West, we I, believe... I, I, we, I'm not we, so much into the pushing the students. I'm more into creating a space in front of them for them to step into if they want to. But, oh, but that's... Yeah, yeah. Of course, that but, is... But your, contractually your speaking, yes. Give, give them... They're entitled to my best efforts. And if I'm not willing to give those best efforts, I, I am 
morally obliged to make it clear to the student that I'm not going to give them my best efforts and they should go somewhere else. That yeah. is give or take exactly what, what I believe yeah. also okay. as, as a person, as a teacher. Sure. We, we must understand, though, that this is a, a cultural... It's cultural. Of course it is. Yes, it's a cultural perception. For the Chinese teacher, there's nothing morally wrong in them saying, for whatever reason, whatever reason, he didn't earn it, that's his problem. So they would say, for example, I'll give you the counter argument. The Chinese teacher would say, well, this, people, this person didn't try to transform himself. He didn't become a better person individually. So, so why am I obligated? Like he didn't make that. You remember the free quarters? He didn't come, he didn't come to me with the other free quarters. So, yeah. And, and, you know, and, he, and the Chinese teacher would say in their minds, right? Because there's actually no debate on these topics in Chinese culture that I've ever seen. So mm-hmm. curiously, the, the Chinese amongst themselves don't even talk about it. It's not it's a non-issue for them. But in their minds, they, they would say, so he's been around five years, ten years. Can't he see that he's still the same level he was after a year or two? Can Why he hasn't he the, quit? Yeah. So, yeah, so it's that, on the that's student on him. to quit. Okay. Yeah, they, they'd say, that's on him. He should go to another teacher. That's not my problem. That's on him. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I can <clears throat> I can see that. But then it it gets worse. It gets worse because say that teacher died prematurely. Maybe that teacher Mm -hmm. was 50, 60 years old and he suddenly passed away, has a heart attack or whatever. And then the school remains with a bunch of students who've actually studied most or the whole system and a bunch of people who had gotten that ill treatment of, you know, staying that same year for 20 years. Mm Mm-hmm. And the, the ones that got the, the more complete transmission, some of them go and open, say, two or three schools. And the other ones who, who were stepping in place for uh, 20 years, they see, the, the, they see their friends and they say, I can open a school as well. So now they're going to open a school and the curriculum is going to be very low level. And they won't even comprehend the curriculum. Otherwise, they, if they understood their low level, typically they wouldn't even try to open a school unless they're right. business-minded and want to make money. Um, and then they teach students. And then those students might not only get the uh, low-quality curriculum, but those people who stepped in place for 20 years might choose certain students to treat the same, and then these students would be even worse. Yeah, so you so you get martial arts basically watered down to nothing. Yes, yes. This is one of the many ways that martial arts can go extinct. They go, they, they become diluted due to interpersonal politics over generations, and it's not a new thing. I think it's been happening at least in China oh, for, for centuries. I, I, it's been happening in in every area of life where skill is transmitted since forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just again, it's a natural human thing. But but that particular dynamic wherein. The teacher feels that he doesn't have the commitment to teach it, quote-unquote, a nobody his thing. And you say, it's not nobody. That guy spent 20 years with you. He also paid every month for 20 years. So what's up? Mm -hmm. He says, no, that's a nobody. Why? And that takes us another direction, which is how the Chinese perceive the, um, the relationships in martial arts lineages. And that is unlike the Japanese, where, where in Japanese traditions, it's typically a very hierarchical and, and more meritocratic. In Chinese martial arts, it's family-based. So the, the martial arts school is a family. 
but you don't get to be a part of the family by merely paying monthly tuition. Hmm. So when people... Yeah, I, I, I have a friend who was legally adopted by his grandmaster before he opened his school. Hmm. Yes. yes, 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 yes. So this is common. So what we do is when you step into the school for the first time, you are, quote unquote, a paying customer. That's how a lot of Chinese people would view it. You're a paying customer or you come in, you get a service, you get what you paid for and what you're worth. Not just what I'm yeah. worth, but also what you're worth. Mm-hmm. If you've proven yourself over years and proven to, to prove oneself would get to that in a moment, what that could mean, you may be adopted into the martial arts family. Now, usually it doesn't mean le- there's no legal papers, but you undergo a, a ceremony called the by sure to bow down to the teacher. And you literally, the teacher would, traditionally the, the custom is the teacher sits on a chair, you, uh, you kneel on the floor and you bow down to them like you would bow to a king in medieval times, bow down with your head to the floor three times, mm-hmm. you offer them a cup of tea, uh, they drink the tea, uh, you might offer them a gift, um, in my case, it's always has to be a very modest gift. I ask for something very modest, very small. It's only symbolic, but some um, in China they often give a red envelope. Has to be red. Red yeah, yeah. is the is the color of success, of money, of uh, of joy. A uh, red envelope with money. Yeah, some Chinese teachers are quite greedy. You know, people can put in ten thousand dollars in the red envelope, but th- th- that's not. I would say that's not even the majority. So it's usually symbolic, and there would be things said. In, in my case, what I do is um, there is a, a ceremony beforehand. So we, uh, be- before all that ceremonial stuff, sorry, um, we, we would have speeches. I would give a speech about the student. The student would give a speech about their experiences at the school. Uh, there would be witnesses. You would bring all the, most of the other students to, to witness the event, even those who are not within the martial arts family. Uh, you'd bring your teachers if you can. And it's sort of like a wedding. You wed Mm. into, and many people call it that, you wed into the system and you take on a vow to continue. um, You say you carry on the system, but actually it's not about carrying on the system as much as it is carrying on your relationship in a familial way with your teacher for the rest of your life. So the obligations taken are that the teacher ought to take care of you as if you were his son and you take care of the teacher as if he was your father. It doesn't mean you are a father and a son. The relationship is not the same. And oftentimes the student might be older than you, so obviously he cannot be your son. But you take care of one another like family. And, and once a student has been introduced into the martial arts family, then there are no secrets, there are no borders. And it's the complete opposite of being a paying customer. Now the teacher would treat you as if he was teaching his son. So now the metric for success is your success is my success. And there are great efforts being undertaken so you can get the farthest within the scope of the tradition as possible. Mm-hmm. Now, as to you know what makes a disciple, this is something I've written about uh, before in my book, The Martial Arts Teacher, is also going to appear in my uh, soon-to-be-published book. I hope to finish it within two or three months, uh, Martial Arts Politics Explained. Um, I introduce my standards, and each teacher has his own different standards, as to, you know, how should a person prove themselves to be worthy 
of becoming a member of the martial arts family. So they have to have a good heart, they have to have a good name, they have to be uh, practicing hard, not necessarily for a specific number of years because people vary, right? Some, some people can prove themselves, technically speaking, within five years other for, uh, after 10 years. Um, and there are several other parameters and such. The, in my case, the students undergo two different types of tests. One is a technical test. They have to go past a certain level of the curriculum just as um, to, to pass that limit in order to see that they're really serious. That's like, um, you know, an equivalent of a black belt test. We don't, we, don't have, mm. um, we, we don't have ranks in the same way, though. And the other one is a personal test. So that is designated for each student based on something which is very difficult for them to do. So my two disciples that I've taken... Until today, one had problem with um, personal drive and perseverance. So his test was, you have to practice. Now, I wouldn't be there throughout the time, but you have to practice every day for six hours a day for a month because he was young. He was 18 years old. He had the strength and stamina for it, but he needed the drive. So I gave him the drive. He also had the time. He also had the time, yes. And then that, that person eventually became uh, a top film editor in Hollywood with that kind of drive. So I fi- And he, he stopped practicing martial arts, but I figure some of it worked. Sure. Because he, he wouldn't have had that type of drive before. Something transitioned there, something transformed. So that, that's very good. I consider it, he doesn't practice martial arts, but I consider him a great success. Of course, yeah, it's mostly yeah, his have. I have students like that where, where they stop doing the stuff that I teach, but they use the stuff that I've taught them to do very well elsewhere. Yeah, that's, that's very satisfying. Yeah, so, so I, I'm saying um, yeah, sometimes our, some of our best students are not our best students in the martial arts, right? Right. Um, and the other fellow, he was smoking for 20 years and it was very difficult. He, he told me a number of times it was very difficult for him to quit. So I told him uh, there would be no smokers in my martial arts family. And okay. that was it. He had to keep quit smoking. For him, yeah. that was a very difficult ordeal. And he did. Good for him. Now, unfortunately, he then kept smoking pot because I was talking about cigarettes. I didn't know about the pot. I should have put that in. But, so so he, he finessed it a little bit. Okay. But yeah, still, he quit yeah. the cigarettes, which is a good thing. Yeah, that's okay. pretty good. Okay, so for, for I think for every student, that should be a different personal test. And I mean, even if they are no longer with you, at least they have made a personal transformation, which is very important. Right. Um, and, and it is considered acceptable because of that familial structure. Okay, you want to be a part of this martial arts family, then prove yourself in some way. And sometimes, you know, just practicing... You, you can force yourself through um, a physical practice to get to a certain level because it's not a very high level to, to get into a martial arts family, but the personal test is the, is the real hard one. Mm. And traditionally what the Chinese do, a lot of Chinese teachers say um, there is an idiom, 10 years to get through the door, 10 years to get through the door. They would like to observe a person for 10 years at least before they're willing to accept them as disciples. Uh, Disciple, to the in Chinese, that is the the traditional term. And the longer I teach, the more I see that indeed, that is not a radical way of thinking about it. 
it does it can take it, it because you, you don't live with those people they're not your romantic partners with a romantic partner maybe you know them very well after a year and a half or two years but if you don't live with the person it could take the upwards of 10 years sometimes to really know them well also to see that for essentially for a decade they haven't screwed up in a big way or in an unrecoverable way yeah um, okay so Remember, you, you contacted me to ask about how things are done in historical martial mm -hmm. arts, and you spent a lot of time telling us about how things are done in the Asian martial arts. What did you actually want to know from me? Okay, so specifically, we just yeah. described the, the six main types of schools that are common mm -hmm. in, in martial arts today that are most common, which were the sports club, the dojo, the wuguan, the cult, the temple, and the recreational. And... Because historical European martial arts are in development tradition, which is yep. just now falling into different uh, sub-styles and divisions, uh, I would first like to ask, how do you see those schools in light of those six categories which I was just describing? Okay. Uh, I would say that the club uh so stables and gym distinction um there are quite a few stables who are aimed at basically producing tournament winners there are a lot of gyms who are basically aimed at giving people a fun way to get fit and stay fit and pursue personal goals and and yes tournaments they may go to tournaments they may not may not but the club isn't the, the club does not define its success by the number of tournament winners that it has um, we certainly see a lot of recreational clubs. Um, I would say that most of the Society for Creative Anachronism clubs that I have come across, I would put in that cap. They're not particularly interested in winning tournaments. It's not really a gym either. They don't really train like that at all. It's mostly people show up and they get given a little bit of basic instruction and then they just fence their friends. And so it's, it's recreational, but I don't mean that term to suggest that it's trivial in these people's lives. It's a very, very important part of their social life and their sense of community. So there's elements of, as you were describing the dojo, as like a community center. There's quite a lot of that going on. Um, so we don't see temples in the historical martial arts tradition particularly. Um, not yet, I should say. Not yet, that, no. That would come um, yeah. Um, in castles, by the way, if, if I were mm -hmm. to predict, because I, I have a good friend, uh, Grandmaster Keith Kernsbert. Are you familiar with him? No. So he is uh, the most successful uh, European martial arts teacher to have ever lived, perhaps uh, in history, because prior to COVID, his organization, he teaches Wing Chun, his organization had 60,000 students all throughout Europe, wow. which is bigger that's than a lot most. Of students. Yeah, that's a lot of students. And Grandmaster Kensbeth, uh, back in the days, between um, roughly the mid-1980s, if I'm not mistaken, then mm -hmm. um, beginning of the 20th, 21st century, he rented a castle in Germany as his headquarters. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah. And they, okay. and they but that, actually, that's, that's not historical martial arts, that's Wing Chun. So yes, but, but they did a little bit of uh, recreated um, historical European martial arts there. Uh, okay, by hang on, mate. 
by building there are you lots up. of people there are yes, lots yes. of people who have who have swung long swords and rapiers and things around mm. and have and have done all sorts of sort of like experimenting with it i mean most famously sir arthur conan doyle's grandson in the 1950s borrowed armor from his grandpa's house obviously kind of was long dead by this point but they were strapping on actual genuine 15th century suits of armor and whacking their friends that's not historical martial arts because it's not based on historical research okay, okay so, so, so i would so I would we have say, i i know what you're are, saying and i mean yeah. i'm in agreement i'm in agreement there's a good friend of uh Kernspert's, uh master bill newman who actually started with eskrima and he over the years he transitioned into using European weapons. I'm not sure how manual based he is, but Bill Newman is also uh, quite well known, and he he done a lot of uh, European weapons fighting, not historically okay. European martial yeah, arts. Yeah, exactly. Weapon. European weapons fighting is a better way to describe it. And the exactly. thing is, you can if you study Escrima or any other kind of weapons based art, you can pick up a sword of any kind and do something useful with it. Um, exactly. So I, I, the whole point was saying. Yeah. In my in my view, it's only a matter of time before somebody takes the initiative and creates a quote unquote temple like school yeah, yeah. in the castle. There will be, there will be, there will be eventually. Um, so, a, a lot of these clubs and schools, and there there are various sort of formal structures for them. They take their sort of their format from a martial art that the teacher has previously studied, right? So, for example, my in my school, the uniform for those groups that use uniforms is a white T-shirt, dark trousers, right, with a school logo on the chest. And I just stole that from a friend of mine who runs a kung fu or used to run a kung fu school where that was their uniform. And I was like, that is completely non-cultural. It's just like the sort of trousers that you find in pretty much every culture that does trousers and a T-shirt, and it is like, it, mm. It's not because the problem is one of the things that we have to do as historical martial artists is we have to see how the clothing of the period affects the movement style of the period and some various other things. So one of the things we need to do is actually have period gear that's made properly and wear that and use that in the research process, right? But the problem with that is I teach like six or seven different historical styles. I am not going to require that my students have six or seven different suits of historical gear for each different style. And in a given night, I might teach three of those different styles to three different groups of students. And I'm not going to be changing my clothes between classes. It doesn't make sense. So, yeah, you know, in, in that way, you're similar to, in, in concept, to Masaki Hatsumi Sensei from Japan. You know him? Yeah. Yeah, because he he'd taken he he went and he studied with those uh, elderly uh, masters of ninjutsu and in, 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 um, in samurai arts, and he brought brought in nine different styles under one umbrella and created his bujinkan. Now I know right. fans of bujinkan and people who can't stand it. I'm not getting into that politics <laughs> now, but I'm just saying uh, conceptually, this is very interesting because he also has uh, his school looks like a, a bigger version of your office with all the books and different yeah. weapons hung from the many different traditions mm. and then he has to bring all of these styles together under one roof okay. which is a big challenge but there's one thing that i don't do i don't combine the styles mm. right they are absolutely it's like if i was teaching let's say i was a language teacher and i could teach um i don't know french and italian and uh hebrew 
right? I wouldn't teach my students a mixture of French, Italian, and Hebrew. My Hebrew students would learn Hebrew from me, not that I speak a word of it. Uh, my French students would learn French from me and so on, right? It, it's, it's like that. It's like they are absolutely distinct because mm -hmm. if you start to blend them together, what you get is a kind of anti-historical mess. Um, <clears throat> Let me ask you the, about, about yeah, that just for a moment. I'm very curious because in, in Chinese martial arts, one of the things that eased uh, people's attempts to combine different styles, um, I, I don't know about the Bujinkan scenario because um, I'm not familiar enough with those uh, uh, different traditions, but in Chinese martial arts, they all share the same movement concepts. So they they all share ah, the same type yeah yeah so, <clears throat> so they have the the same types of steps in combat right. or very similar ones they they have the they also share a very similar culture in so so for example concepts of yin and yang and what does it mean where your palm face when your palm faces this way or that way is that yin or yang well most chinese styles would agree even if they look very different because conceptually they, they're closer like that due to their shared culture, it's easier for them to speak with one another and to integrate if they so desire. Yeah. Well, yes, the, the styles that I'm teaching um, come from wildly different cultures, right? <clears throat> and so, for example, the footwork and mechanics we use for early 17th century Italian rapier are totally inappropriate for early 15th century um, Italian knightly combat, right? The culture itself that they're coming from isn't that distinct, but the the martial context in which these actions are going to be applied completely different. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, blending early Italian, uh, early fifteenth century Italian longsword with early seventeenth century Italian rapier, it would just be a disaster. Hmm. Although people do do it in tournaments all the time. <laughs> So there we go. Um, oh, that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. So, but my point was basically, I come from a, I come from a specific kind of specific to me. I mean, um, background. I've had this Tai Chi teacher, and I've been to that karate class, and I studied this kung fu and that aikido and blah blah blah. And so I've been influenced by these various teachers. Um, just just to keep in with the, the tradition thing, my Tai Chi teacher's name was Steve Fox. His wife is Kedzi Fox. Kedzi Fox trained with Chen Man Ching. So that's my Tai Chi lineage because I know Chinese martial artists care about that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so the so that has inf impacted how I run my classes, how I ran my school when I was running it as a as a specific training environment. Um, and, you know, I've seen people who've come from a much more sport fencing background. I mean, I did have a lot of sport fencing in my background, but I took my martial arts school structures from, I guess, I was mostly influenced by Japanese and Chinese martial arts that I've practiced in the uh, way I set up my school. That's quite interesting because you, you mentioned you studied the Chen Man Ching lineage, and, yeah. and that is a very laid back type of school. Yeah, very laid back. I love it. Like there's no no ranks, no no bowing, no anything. It was all just you know we showed up and Steve threw us through the walls, and then we figured out how to throw each other through the walls, and it was it was great fun. Yeah, um, because uh, I, uh, we should tell listeners that uh, Chen Manqing was an artist, a painter, yeah. yeah, and and a big drinker and Absol total alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, so he was a very laid back type of person. Yeah. 
Uh, and and his his lineage begins with him, and he he began it in the 1940s. So it's a very recent Tai Chi lineage too. But anyway, so but if we say go to some of my colleagues in America, their club or school that they have founded um, will be coming from a different set of sort of backgrounds, and maybe they they come from sport fencing. So the structure of the classes is closer to a sport fencing class and the way the whole thing is run is closer to how sport fencing is is taught and trained. Um, other people are coming from a reenactment or living history or SCA background and so again they're, they're structuring their club completely differently. So some clubs have formal rank structures, some clubs have no hierarchy at all, some clubs are um, very sort of strict and formal in the way things are taught some clubs have a lot more play you know it's 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 because we don't have a a common model to draw from that it's the the models are so widely different mm-hmm. there's no such thing as like a standard historical martial arts school or club in the world that doesn't exist yes of course that, that makes sense i mean the standardization that came about in chinese martial arts First of all, it took probably thousands of years. And secondly, um, it was greatly strengthened by uh, two cultural elements. One was the military, because um, the, the Chinese martial arts arise from three sources primarily. One is the military, the other is civilian life, and the third is temples. And those three sources, the military, the civilian life, and temples, also share knowledge with one another as in, okay, so what happens was is, is typically people become conscript, conscripted, then they learn some martial arts uh, which are required for their military service. Typically, the focus would have been on the uh, on the sword and the spear, so the cur- the the curved single-handed, sometimes the double-handed sword that is called the Tao. Not the same, by the way, as the Tao, like the way the Tao from the mm-hmm. Tao de Jing just sounds a little bit different in Chinese. Uh, and the spear. Spear was the primary Chinese military weapon for many centuries. It was the primary European military weapon for centuries too. Yes. Swords just got all the glory. Spears did all the all the actual work. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Pretty much. Although I, I, I would be inclined to, to believe that the Chinese used swords a tad more than uh, the Romans and Greeks did. Um, I don't know. Okay, the Roman legionaries, the... Their primary killing weapon was the gladius. They would mm. get in close with their shields and they would have this short stabbing sword that they would go stab, stab, stab. And that's, I think, how Romans killed, you know, in, in actual, like, battle and leaving aside the sort of siege engines and projectile weapons, their artillery, basically. So gladius I is think, in the, the spatha uh, later, yeah. right? Well, the spatha was the, the cavalry sword. Oh, okay. Um, okay. As, as I understand it. Roman history is not my area of expertise, so I may be talking out of my ass, but the, as I understand it, I think most of the close quarters killing by Roman legionaries was done with the gladius. That's my and, understanding and no, anyway. Notice how interesting that the, both the, um, the Greeks and the Romans had a very strong preference for relatively straight swords. Uh, whilst mm-hmm. the Chinese, although the, for, for some periods uh, straight swords were mo- almost exclusive in military use, in, during other periods, alongside the straight swords, and, and often more so than the straight swords, they had curved swords. And not necessarily, so there's a curved sword that, that looks like a katana, 
or a longer mm-hmm. katana, the nodachi, odachi, we, we spoke about the miao dao earlier, but the dao is shorter, right? Dao yeah. could be... It's basically uh, a scimitar or a cutlass. Ex- exactly. Call that. Exactly. Yeah. And when you use a sword like that, it also changes the way you move. So you need sure. round, rounder motions to take advantage of the curved blade, right? In, in order to, to slice and the way that it cuts. Um, I do believe that the reason that the Chinese had a greater proclivity and preference for these types of blades has to do with the their preference for circularity and round movements and concepts in their own culture. You see? Okay. But those round movements, they don't work terribly well in line of battle. Oh, they, well, it, 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 again, it, it depends on whether they had shields, whether they did not have shields, mm. what kind of opponents they're facing. Let us remember, for example, that the Chinese Yuan dynasty was founded by the Mongols. And when they were fighting the Mongols, again, I'm, I'm not a military expert, but I think that that would ha- wouldn't have looked like the same as w- the Romans would fight the, right. the Germans. Yes. Yeah, we're not talking about line of battle. We're talking about exactly. So that um, so again, basically, the, basically, the Mongols fought closer to where the Germans fought, and the Romans came up with this this system of like a lot like a Greek phalanx, where you have basically a line of shields and a line of spears behind them, and then you get in close and you stab, 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 and you're you're not fighting individually; you're fighting entirely as a unit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so but, but we, we should remember that a lot of the, the scimitars that that we we know of are at somewhat more curved than the Chinese Dao. Yeah. So the, the Dao is the, the curve is a little is somewhere between a, a scimitar and a straight sword. So some, here's, somewhere. Here's an, yeah. Here's an interesting thought for you, right? In European art, it is very rare. Uh, so we say before the so we say before eighteen hundred. It is rare to see a man holding a curved sword, right? Mm-hmm. Almost invariably, if, if there's a curved sword, it's a picture of Judith, who has just slain Holophanes, and she's always using a curved, or almost always using a curved sword, mm-hmm. okay? To slice the head off. So, there, yeah, there are, lots of, there are lots of pictures of women holding a curved sword, um, and it's Judith slaying Holophanes. But there's, it's, it's sufficiently rare... Um, and again, normally, uh, the only one example I can think of, and I think it's on the floor of Siena Cathedral, um, where you have the slaughter of the innocents. So after um, Herod said, you know, kill all the, all the male children, um, of course, the soldiers sent out to do that, they all have curved swords, because in European culture in that period... Which period are we talking about? We're talking about, um, should we say, 1200 to 1600. Okay. The people who carried curved swords were the Turks and the Christians all had straight swords, mm-hmm. right? And so it's quite difficult to find pictures of um, men holding straight swords, uh, men holding curved swords in art of that period. To the point that when I took my kids when they were little around various art galleries in Italy, for example, we spent seven hours in the Vatican Museum. Oh my God, it was amazing. But I told them, I'll give you 10 cents for every time you find me a picture of a man holding a curved sword. And at the end of the day, I owed my children less than a euro each. Mm. Right. But then, of course, my youngest daughter um, found a pen and paper and drew a picture of uh, a man holding a curved sword and said, that'll be 10 cents, please, daddy. 
<laughs> oh, that, that's a smart kid. <laughs> that's a very smart kid, yeah. That's a um, kid that's going to buy you a nice villa when you retire. Well, maybe. You're making maybe. money. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. So, so, anyway, so um, the whole curse or straight sword thing, there's a lot of... There's a lot of cultural stuff going on there. I, I don't, honestly, I don't see it as a, as a particularly necessarily a practical usage difference. I think it's more of a, this is how our culture perceives of the, the archetype that is sword. Um, yeah. I, I would also add that the curved swords became um, far more common in Chinese culture in the 19th and, uh, sorry, 18th, 19th, and maybe early 20th centuries due to the reuse in civilian life. So um, in civilian life, you don't hold a line of battle. And there was a big bodyguard, bodyguard culture in China, especially uh, with respect to um, people having to send mail and, and treasury across the land. Because mm-hmm. China, up until, I think... It might have been up until the the, con- the conquest of the nation by the um, by the communists and the established uh, the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949. I think they did not have a, a national mail system. Yeah, so I mean, the national mail system was invented by the British in the early 19th century, I think. Okay, with postage so, stamps so, and whatnot. So you say that's the early 19th century. The Chinese only probably only had a good one. By the mid twentieth century, so that's very sure. late. So if you if you needed to to send anything of value, then you would send it with, um, you know, by by horse and cart. Mm-hmm. And if it was valuable, then people wanted to take it. So there there so were you bodyguards. Yeah, bodyguard services uh, guarding those caravans. Also, let let us not forget the Silk Road, mm-hmm. and the way you go walk with the caravan. Is actually because there, there aren't a lot of bodyguards typically. There are not a hundred or two hundred of them, maybe five or ten or fifteen, and each of them is positioned in a, at a different spot around that caravan. You know, one is in front, one is in the back, one is on this side, one is on that side, one is in between. So they don't stand right next to one another. Right. So yeah, and, so we're not for, talking line of battle at all. Exactly. And for these types of people, the, the sword of choice was often the, the Tao, the curved sword. Sure. As authority. Also, just speaking of um, European curved swords, it occurred to me while we were speaking that when the Romans invaded Spain, they were very impressed with the, um, the, the weapon that the Spanish were using to, because they could actually cut through a legionary's helmet, right? Mm-hmm. And it was a curved sword that they adopted and called Gladius Hispaniensis. And also... The sword that Alexander the Great is reputed to have used is a Mahira, which is actually a similarly curved sword. It sort of curves forward like a, like a Kukri. And legend has it that the Gurkha Kukri, um, the Gurkhas or the, the, the Nepalese people in that area, they started copying the swords that Alexander and his troops carried. So the whole curved mm-hmm. sword thing, it's, it's a bit more complicated than, than what we were saying before. Um, I would like to ask, how was it that the uh, Spanish model was able to cut for a legionary's helmet? Was it the steel, the design, the, the curvedness? I think it? it's the design. It's basically, if you think of it uh, like a cookery, like a large-ish cookery, so it's got a forward curve, so the, the, basically the, the sword is kind of bent forwards, hmm. and it's got a reasonably deep belly. And also, the legionary's helmet is made of iron, 
right? It's not, it's not, it's not a tempered steel helmet. It's an iron helmet. So actually cutting through it isn't that difficult. Hmm. Um, and that, that's a critical thing. I mentioned earlier, like armor changed dramatically in the late 14th century. It was because sometime in the 1380s in Milan, they figured out how to make curved plates of steel that were both, um, that were, that they could actually heat treat without losing the shape. So you could get it actually, um, properly tempered so that it would, it was both hard and tough. Previously, mm-hmm. they could either make it hard or they could make it tough and they couldn't make it, um, they couldn't make curved structures out of what we would think of as properly hardened steel, right? So that's where, you know, armor really took off. So plate armor really took off in a big way in the 15th century because they could, they figured out how to make this much, much more effective plate. Um, so yeah, so legionaries, it's a soft iron helmet cutting through it. It's, it's not easy, but you know, with the right sort of weapon, It'll, yeah, it goes straight through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly swords can cut through iron. I've seen uh, a demonstration mm. of a modern-made Miaodao, which is granted much higher standard, you know, with yeah, modern yeah. purified steels and factories, etc. Uh, cutting through uh, steel pipes. Yeah. Can definitely sure. do it. Uh, it's not, but it wouldn't cut through a, a hardened mm. uh, steel pipe. It was cut through a, an ordinary mild steel pipe. Sure. Like, like you can use, um, you can use a pair of pliers to cut through the steel link on a steel link fence. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. if you're doing like secret ninja shit and cutting your way into some, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> you're cutting your way in, in through a fence, like clip, 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 no problem at all because hardened steel just cuts right through softer steel. And, oh. and you can harden a steel blade in a way that you couldn't at that, in that time, you couldn't harden a curved surface. Mm-hmm. I would like to go back on the topic of comparing the East Asian traditional martial arts with uh, historically imperial martial arts and ask sure. a few this. In East Asia, there was a very strong integration of either philosophy or religion or both mm-hmm. into martial traditions. In, and that is a big part of what helped keep those traditions alive because... Mm-hmm. The Chinese have seen the martial arts as an expression of the rest of their culture. So, sure. th- say there was a village. And I'll, I'll give the example of Chen village. Right, cut, mm-hmm. cut to the question. We're running late on time, so cut straight so, to your question. Okay, so they preserved it as a cultural artifact because it had cultural, philosophical, sometimes religious value. So, sure. I wonder about, um, is there a movement of certain people who are interested in the integration of philosophy or perhaps even religion? into historical European martial arts? Yes, uh, we do have, and, and they are generally very problematic. So for example, there is a poisonous little subculture in historical European martial arts, note the European, that want to basically hark back to the original function of, well, uh, like one of the reasons that knights were being trained in the 15th century was so they could go on crusades. Hmm. Okay, so let's go to the Middle East and and kill a bunch of people because we have different religious views, and that that so there's there are some kind of religious nutcases who are basically they want to train historical martial arts because it makes them think that they're a crusader. But the right? enemy has AK forty sevens. 
Well, duh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and 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 other means of blowing you up too. I mean, it's horrible. But so there's that. There are people who are much less problematically. They have a philosophy. Could be based on. I mean, there's there are references to, for example, Greek philosophers in some of the historical martial arts texts. Most famously, Angelo Vigiani's um, *Los Garamov*, published in 1575, where he explicitly refers to Aristotle's *Physics*, books seven and eight. Right. Um, so there is a philosophical underpinning to the arts as they were then. But the philosophies that we live by now are completely different to the ones back then. There are some people who want to revive the philosophies and practice the arts um, accordingly. There are some people who have a philosophy and they want to express that through their art. Um, and there are some people who, who do want to kind of revive the kind of, shall we say, problematic Christian <laughs> Um, aspect of some of the these arts. So, what what was the intention not, of the of the founders of some of those styles? Did they express any religious or philosophical? No, 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 no. Okay, if we talk about like 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 um, Lichtenauer in uh, is credited with saying something along the lines of "Young knight learned to love God and honor women and da 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 da." So there's some sort of very general kind of, you should be a good Christian and do this, this, that, and the other, right? But there isn't, there isn't much in the way of specific philosophy, except, I mean, in the 16th century, we have at least some um, martial artists writing books who are coming from, I mean, Agrippa is the one that springs to mind, who was a mathematician and an architect, and his idea was recreating sword fighting from an entirely rational and marsh, uh, sort of rational and um, mathematical perspective, right? This should work because it works mathematically, um, and that that's a philosophy. But it's not really a it's a philosophy of rationality rather than a philosophy as a system of ethics. How about a social philosophy? Because in the in the East Asian arts, there's a whole we we're just talking about how hierarchy or family dynamics play a big role in how the schools actually mm -hmm. function. Also a big role in how the, the typical politics are created. Um, I don't see it in the sources. So, I mean, Vadi, for example, in his 1480s, De Arte Gladiatore de Vicandi, he mentions the sort of people who are um, fit to study the art, like kings and courtiers and princes and knights and dukes and barons and whatnot and definitely no peasants allowed right they are only fit to carry heavy loads he says right so they are there are some sort of like only people of a certain social class should be allowed to train these arts right which is of its time that is quite unsurprising and not even particularly objectionable it's just they were all massively classes back then because they were living in a kind of feudal society right so modern historical martial arts teachers absolutely have all sorts of social philosophies right this podcast for instance is entirely strategically its goal is to promote women and other underrepresented demographics in mm. historical martial arts right? what, what are other underrepresented demographics 
Ah, well, we have far fewer people of color, for example, than mm. in America. You have a certain like proportion of people who are, shall we say, not white, and they are not represented. Let's say I don't have figures on this, but let's say that was twenty percent or fifty percent or whatever. Let's say fifty percent. We would expect fifty percent of people doing historical martial arts in America to be not white, but they're mostly white. Not all. But mostly, and the thing I think is, people of color in the, in the United States are about twelve. I can't recall if it's twelve or sixteen percent of the population. And all, that also depends on what you consider of color. Okay. Right, and it, it varies widely by area too. Some areas are, yeah. you know, much more diverse. Like Lu- Louisiana, right? right? Probably forty percent or something. Uh, yeah, who knows? Um, but the point is that. Uh, I think that representation is helpful. And so finding people who are not middle-aged white men like me and bringing them onto my show and letting the wider historical martial arts community hear from those people, it also means that someone who is listening to the show who is not a middle-aged white dude sees people like themselves who are being sort of like, like in a martial arts class, the person that the instructor is demonstrating with is elevated above the other students in that moment, right? Same sort of thing. Bring somebody onto my show. I am indicating to the world that their opinion is worth listening to. And so affirming their, their value to the community. And so people like them can see people like them in that position and hopefully be encouraged to take up historical martial arts or to when they are inevitably discouraged by showing up to an event where it's all white men go well hang on maybe that's the events problem that's not me hmm i see what you mean yes yeah representation matters so and, and that is entirely due to my sort of social it's, it's a philosophical position it's a social philosophical position Right. Well, it's a noble take take on it. That I I would agree. But could could you describe perhaps other philosophies that are not as not very disagreeable that that you came uh, you came across with other teachers you know? Um, I know people who are explicitly trying to use historical martial arts, particularly knightly combat, to kind of as as a venue to explore the virtues of knighthood, so the chivalry, okay? Mm-hmm. But chivalry as it should have been, rather than perhaps chivalry as it actually was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the virtues of knighthood include things like largesse, so being generous to people, giving money to charity and whatnot, and um, defending the weak, right? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So so they are explicitly using their historical martial arts practice to promote the chivalric values. Has there been people, teachers, who considered knighting students as equivalent of black belts and such? Well, in the SCA, Society for Creative Anachronism, it's all about that kind of stuff. They have knights and dukes and lords and all sorts of things. Okay, could um, you describe that society for a moment? I, I'm, I'm not familiar with it. Honestly, everybody. I'm okay. I'm I am not a member. Many of my friends are members, um, and basically, it's called the Society for Creative Anachronism, which tells you pretty much everything you need to know about it. Um, and it has it has ranks and hierarchies. It's all based on kind of 
Well, one of the strap lines for the society is the Middle Ages as they ought to have been, <laughs> right? And so, although it's not just, they don't just do combat stuff. They also do things like cookery and art and calligraphy and you know, all sorts of other sort of historical skill sets. Um, and some of them to an astonishingly high level. Um, and they do, they have, Within their their culture, they have kingdoms run by kings and queens, and you become the king by winning the crown tournament, and that makes you king for like six months or a year or till the next crown tournament. Um, and they have all sorts of. I, I've never been part of it, so I don't have a, like an in depth knowledge of it. But basically, you know, when you join the society. Uh, you usually get some sort of patron um, who who might you would be like they're they're the knight you're the squire and you do various things for them and, and they have knighting ceremonies and that sort of thing and that's very much about um, my read of it as an outsider who has many friends who are on the inside my read of it is people aspire to a noble fair culture where there are people who are respected because they have earned that respect through their actions. And they just like the idea of there is this process I can go through where I can become a person who is respected for the actions they've done. It gives them the opportunity to do the actions that will gain them the respect and then a formal recognition of those actions. Um, and, you know, I have friends who are have like orders of, chivalry in the SCA like the white scarf which at one at one time was the highest award for fencing you could get in any given kingdom mm -hmm. um, and it's 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 like feudalism without the actual feudalism in a sense feudalism without the money yeah feudalism without the money and without the land ownership um, and without also the permanence right you're you know the king's son is not a prince if if you if your dad happens to be a king in the SCA because he's uh, and if you become king I think like three times you're made a duke for life so let's say your dad is a duke when he dies you don't become a duke you can't yet. inherit the title yet yet <laughs> right um, whereas in Britain we have dukedoms and if the duke dies their eldest male relative son ideally becomes duke mm. right I mean, I mean so, if you if you were to think of it. The whole state of Israel is creative anachronism, right? We, we come in after yeah. two, 2,000 years in, um, in the diaspora and we recreate what the, the state is, we hope it, sh it ought to have been. So, for example, in biblical times, if there were witnesses and the, uh, the council of elders was willing, you would stone those gay people. And yeah. nowadays in, in Tel Aviv, uh, it's often called the, the, the gay capital of the world. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yes, things have improved in certain ways. So yeah, where, where actually are you in Israel? I uh, live in Ramat Gan, which is a suburb of Tel Aviv. It's not that far away. Okay. It's worth mentioning, by, by the way, it's, it's almost um, surreal having this casual, lovely, friendly talk. And uh, we're in the midst of a war here, literally. Yeah. Yes, I'm aware. Uh, the the uh. sirens uh, sound off several times a day, and then I have to go down to the shelter. Wow. 
So or, okay. ordinarily, a person of my age would have been a military reserve because I did serve. Sure. Uh, unfortunately, I when my service was finished, I requested to be in reserve. Typically, you don't even have to request; it's automatic. But since I was with the Israeli police force, they did not have the bureaucratic arrangement for people with my my type of duties to to be in reserve. So I was absolved. Uh, so instead, uh, I do my reserve. I, I simply volunteer to treat people with traditional Chinese medicine um, as best I can to, to try to help, especially civilians who just fled from southern Israel. Wow. Okay. Yeah, difficult times. It's difficult, but you know what? Despite the, the great tragedy that is being experienced collectively right now in the region, mm-hmm. um, Often there is nothing quite like a war to unite a people, which is something the British had not experienced, fortunately, since the Second World War. But we Israelis have had several times over sure. uh, within the span of the, the past 75 years. And the nation is now, socially speaking, more united than ever. So this is a, a dynamic of war that I think is is not actually discussed so much in the historical research on on the wars of the past. People focus on the military campaigns, the weapons, the strategy, the politics. But how about, it, it's not, you know, what we, we often don't, don't see written about are how did the common people behave? It's becoming a lot more common. There's a lot more of that in the last 30, 40 years hmm. um, of historical research. Um, and not least, the usual effect of bombing a city is to unite the city against the bombers, mm. right? Which, and they, they knew this already quite soon after the Second World War. And yet still, what did the Americans do in Vietnam? And did it help? No, it didn't, <laughs> right? Mm. It's, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. Everybody knows that, that, that bombing civilians doesn't work militarily, and yet they still do it because I guess they feel they have to be seen to be doing something. Yeah, I mean, it depends on one's goal. The goal can be to uh, eradicate the enemy. The goal might be to make more money for the military-industrial complex. Yeah. Uh, the the goal might be to, to psychologically undermine the enemy to the point of less retaliation in the future. The, 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 but that really doesn't the, work. That really doesn't work. But, well, you, you know what? Um, I think... Does it work in the short term, long term? Here in the Middle East, what we've seen is following military campaigns, there typically has been um, quiet on the on the military front, but it, it just did not last. The, the, the more severe the campaign, the longer it has lasted. So not, for example, we haven't had much action on the northern front since the Second Lebanese War. Um, you know, they shoot a missile here and there, but overall, overall, rather quiet. Uh, we haven't had any attacks coming from uh, Egypt since the um, the Yom Kippur War, the October War of 1973. Now, of course, we also signed a peace deal with them. But if, um, politically speaking, in Egypt, the I think the uh, the vibe, the the, the the kind of attitude towards Israel in Egypt is overwhelmingly negative within sure. the, the majority of the population. 
And, and so it's a, a sort of a cold peace. There are a lot of tourists coming from Israel to visit Egypt. You know, the, the Egyptians would be well behaved in that, in that regard. Egyptians are coming to Israel, especially to Jerusalem, for worship, religious reasons. And, and we are real behaved towards them. There are a lot of tensions, but the, the war has sort of brought things to at least a temporary standstill. So I think it depends on whom your enemy is, you know, how the magnitude of destruction, right? We see the Japanese are arming themselves now. Now they have a military uh, once more, but they have been quite, they've been quiet and pacifistic for several decades. Hmm. Also, the Americans, um, it's very, I think the Americans did very different things with the invasions of... Um, say, Vietnam and Japan. In Japan, yeah, there sure. was a, a whole takeover of the entire uh, Japanese educational system. And so the, the Japanese were, con we, we, would, we could say convinced, but actually uh, educationally coerced to think differently about their recent and future histories. In Vietnam, I don't think that the United States had, had done anything like this. No. And the results were very different. So I, I think there are more factors, uh, civilian and cultural factors, beyond just the bombings themselves. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, these, these are extremely complex phenomena. But actually, there are a couple of questions that I ask most of my guests. Um, let us hmm. get to those. Yeah, sure. The first, the first is, um, what is the best idea you haven't acted on? <laughs> the best idea. Well, without... <laughs> When I was young, um, my parents attempted to, to have me study all, all manner of uh, musical instruments. And the one they, that I actually desired as a child was a piano. Okay. And, and, I, and, and I found myself almost tapping my fingers against the table as if I was playing a piano uh, throughout my childhood. So there's something in there. And I, and I do have a musical ear. But I haven't quite picked an instrument, uh, and certainly not the piano, for my life. And then I got into martial arts, and I'm, I'm so deeply occupied with the martial arts and writing books and Chinese medicine nowadays that I really do not have time to, to pick up an instrument. I'm engaged with too, too many other things. So I think I have some you have musical time. I do know. What you've heard earlier is um, our elderly cat, Ginger, whom we saved. She's 17, a little bit senile. Okay. So she meows too much. Okay, you don't, you, but you don't actually have human children. No, not yet. No, okay. Um, so because I was thinking, because we have a, my mum's a piano teacher, and so she insisted that, and she she bought um, one of those um, electric pianos that actually has the proper pedals and it actually has the right kind of piano feel. Doesn't take up a lot of space, but um, it's a great thing to have if you have a kid in the house. Because they mm -hmm. can learn to pick out tunes and what have you. And my younger daughter, she doesn't like having formal piano lessons, but she she plays like Taylor Swift stuff. She kind of works it out herself on the piano because she's a massive Taylor Swift fan. So she works it all out herself on the piano. And just having the piano there creates the opportunity to play it. So I think if you put a piano in your house somewhere, you might you might actually find yourself five minutes here, ten minutes there, when you need to maybe think mm. about. Maybe you may need to let your subconscious work out the structure for the next book. Just, you know, play Fur Elise or whatever. And da -da -da -da. <laughs> the 
could, could be could be that so I, you know once this war is over they have more time to think about such things <laughs> sure uh, but, but you, know, you know in every every person's life there are um, certain points of the divergency where you see that your life could have led you some someplace very mm-hmm. different for example I studied law and my, my father had a medium-sized law office which was very successful he later merged it with one of the biggest law firms in the country I could have gone on to be a very lawyer. successful lawyer. Uh, I, I do have the uh, the skills for it, uh, but that's not what my soul was calling calling up on me to okay. do. Okay, what kid grows up thinking I could be a martial artist or a lawyer? I know I'll be a lawyer. <laughs> oh well, I was thinking I would be a lawyer since I was four years old and told everybody I knew. Then I changed okay. my mind around the age of twenty one, twenty two. Okay, fair enough. Um, and and uh, there's also one moment when I was uh, traveling, I was just on the plane on, on my way to my first trip in China to practice martial arts. And I was um, sitting in business class. So my, my father had lots of points with the airline. So he used the points to buy me a, a business class ticket to spoil me on my first trip, oh, big nice. trip to China. Yeah, that's very kind of him. And, and next to me was sitting this fellow who was formerly an, an Air Force pilot in Israel and was telling me these stories. And we really, really hit off and we liked each other. And by the end of the flight, he was trying to, to convince me to come to Beijing and perhaps uh, see if I would like to work for his company. And okay. something about that conversation made it seem to me, and remember, I was a police investigator interrogator, that this fellow might have been with, you know, a certain agency. Yes, understood. You know what I mean? yeah. So, um, and he actually gave me his card and I was supposed to call, but I, and, and I was looking at that card every day and thinking, my God, this is like, this, this doesn't happen every day. You know, this is a mm-hmm. big opportunity. And Beijing is just a three hour drive from Tianjin where I was practicing martial arts. But then I thought, hey, I'm here in China to practice martial arts to to become a martial arts teacher like i'm not going to go into this james bond kind of adventure whatever that is that's not you know that's not what i signed up for so i had to throw away the cards i wouldn't keep thinking about it it, you know yeah yeah okay um and my last question somebody gives you like a million dollars or whatever a huge amount of money Mm. to improve historical martial arts or in your case perhaps chinese martial arts worldwide how would you spend the money temple Easy temple, but not a temple, not like a temple on a mountaintop. Which, by the way, I've been to mm-hmm. in China. I've been to places like this, magnificent. Um, no, um, a big school that, which is what I'm going to set up anyway in the years to come. A school which is a martial arts school with a Chinese medicine clinic. That that's the ultimate goal. Okay. I got, so I got you, into Chinese medicine to um, complement the martial side of what I practice, what I teach. Traditional Chinese medicine is the yin to the yang of traditional Chinese martial arts. They sure. have a lot in common and they work well together. And, and historically, uh, many great teachers had uh, school martial arts schools, which are also Chinese medicine clinics. So that's okay. what I You may be interested to know, um, I owe my swordsmanship career to traditional Chinese medicine. Because oh. I had hideous um, tendonitis in both wrists hmm. and to the point that I, I was a cabinet maker at the time, that if I did any swordsmanship where you're banging swords together, my wrists would swell up and I would have difficulty working, 
right? And doctors just basically told me, well, don't swing swords around like that's a solution, <laughs> right? And so I met this um, Kung Fu instructor by chance and happened to mention this. And he did this massage, which was unbelievably painful. And he taught me some basic exercises. And so long as I keep up my massage and exercise, my wrists are absolutely fine. And they are way better than they ever were before the, the problem occurred. Um, mm. And I mean, literally it went from, uh, maybe I could do swords once a week if I'm really careful to, I could do swords as much as I like. That's fantastic. So, so, so I'm, so I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of um, Chinese medicine, for, at least for some things. So, so you basically treat you primarily with twin art, Chinese medical massage, right? Yeah, and I have like the uh, I I still get this sort of herbal medicine stuff that kind of you, you splash yeah, off. Pour, yeah, yeah, so dia da jiu, yeah. it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it dia da jiu translates as hit for medicine or hit for wine. Yeah, and these are herbal formulas that are uh, made as alcoholic tinctures That's that right. you you rub into your skin in affected areas. It it can be for all kinds of conditions, but usually for uh, orthopedic conditions. Yeah. That's exactly what we use it for. Yeah, that's, that's so, really excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, you know, so you're going to use this millions of dollars to build your temple. Where would you put it? Oh, so I, I would I just nickname it a temple. Of course, it would be more so, like, you know, yeah, yeah. So your your Chinese your school. your martial arts <laughs> yeah. center. Yeah, I I would put it in probably my city, somewhere close to where I sure. live. Yeah. Okay. I um, think there isn't if you. You know, there's two two modes of thought with um, the Chinese monk tradition. So a lot of monks dwell in the monasteries for the specific reason that in a monastery you have a lifestyle that allows you a lot of time to practice your religion, your meditation, everything else you want to work through, whether it's martial arts or other things. Um, but there are actually monastic traditions that say, oh, the, the, the highest level of being a monk is living as a monk amongst the people. Right. So living yeah, a, it's harder. Yeah, a life that externally appears perfectly ordinary, but within your home and w within your own little temple that you built or wherever, you have this very deep religious existence, but you still live among the people and you fulfill your role both as a, as a monk and as a human being, a part of a civilization, society. So uh, I... At this stage in my life, I feel actually more comfortable living amongst the people and not, I, I don't have any desires to retreat into the mountains or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Well, good. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of, of martial arts schools that hide away where you can't find them. Because, there we go. So, um, we are well over time. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's wrap it up. I'll cut this little bit out. Um, so thanks so much for joining me today, Jonathan. It's been lovely to meet you. Thank you so very much, Guy, for having me and hosting me. I think we had a splendid, uh, very educational conversation for the both of us. <laughs> thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jonathan. You can find the episode show notes, as always, at soulschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember, go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. 
Make it your New Year's resolution 2024 to become a fully-fledged sword person. I'd like to thank the people who make this show possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I would have quit a long time ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And I would like to thank, as always, Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Join us next time when I'll be talking to Samantha West who is an instructor at the Dueling Weapons Academy of Renaissance Fencing, a historical martial arts club in Barrie, Ontario, where she teaches Italian longsword, 133 sword and buckler, and rapier, amongst other things. She's also involved with running the event Gathering of the Blades. You don't want to miss that, so join us in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening, and I will see you soon. (laughs) 